Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one features one of Labour's biggest stars, one of British politics' biggest stars, Emily Thornbury. She was absolutely everything you would hope for. Big personality, great storyteller, some emotional stuff in there about her background. And as we discussed, blessed with a great voice for broadcasting. So who knows uh, what the future holds for Emily. I'm delighted to announce the guests for my Christmas specials on the 19th and 20th of December at the Leicester Square Theatre. On the 19th of December, I'll be joined by Jess Phillips and Sarah Wollaston. And on the 20th, 20th of December, I'll be joined by Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles. So four brilliant guests. I can't wait for them. And as always, MP4 will be there um, providing the music. And it'll be a nice Christmas party. So uh, uh, I, I just can't wait for those. I love doing those ones. I love doing them all, of course. Um, so yes, oh, and I'm also doing uh, two performances in London of my Edinburgh show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, which I've obviously had to hugely overhaul and update given the events of the uh, the last few days and weeks. Uh, and I'm doing those on Saturday the 1st of December and Wednesday the 5th, but there aren't many tickets left for those. Um, so uh, do get in quick if you would like to come. Um, as always, thanks for downloading. You can email the show as well. I love getting emails off people. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, I get so many emails from, from people who uh, had a huge response to the Kevin Haig podcast, who was a brilliant guest. Um, so thank you for all of those. Anyway, enough chuntering and muttering. It's time to leave you in the very capable hands of Emily Thornbury. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good evening. Hello, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Excellent, welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Excellent, welcome. First time is excellent. Well, welcome. What a wonderful month it's been in politics. Brexit is on uh, and it is uh, happening at the moment. Uh, who knows what will have happened by the time we get outside. Uh, but you will have heard Philip Hammond on Radio 4 this morning. Uh, I heard radio, uh, the, the Chancellor was on the radio this morning. He used a great quote. Uh, talking about Brexit, he said, uh, well, I think you'll find, Nick, uh, that people did not vote to make themselves worse off. I think they did, mate. It <laughs> was a shocking misunderstanding of where the British public are at. I suggest all the polling suggests people knew full well they were going to make themselves skint and they didn't give a shit. <laughs> the sort of politics we're dealing with. A phenomenal admission this morning from Philip uh, Hammond, who's the Chancellor. He said, every scenario of Brexit will hurt the economy but we'll do it anyway. <laughs> now, I know that Brexit has sort of changed the logic in a lot of things, but it is remarkable to wake up in the morning and hear the Chancellor saying, what I'm about to do is bad, but I'm not going to stop doing it. In no other world, in no other time have I ever heard a Chancellor. You know when Gordon Brown was Chancellor, you'd never have heard him get up in the House of Commons and say, Mr Speaker, these plans that we bring forward today will destroy the UK economy, result in mass unemployment, and I commend this speech to the House. <laughs> He's gone fucking mad. <laughs> in, you know, in a weird way. You know what's really odd is people agree with him. They go, well, he's right. 
He's right, it is going to ruin things. I mean, in, in an odd way, is this part of a grand strategy to get the public on side? Well, he said it was going to be shit, and I absolutely agree with him. <laughs> Finally agree with the Tory party for the first time in my life. Might be some um, logic to it. Uh, of course, we've had a massive resignation from the government. Uh, Dominic Raab, who was Brexit secretary, uh, resigned. Dominic Raab, who, on, I think, day three... Uh, into the job, gave an interview with Andrew Marr, where his opening line as Brexit Secretary said to Andrew Marr, uh, you'll forgive me, Andrew, uh, if I don't have a laser-like focus on the detail. <laughs> no. no. I won't forgive you that. That is your job, Dominic. Uh, <laughs> in fact, it turned out detail wasn't, not only in terms of Brexit, but he resigned days after giving a speech where he said he'd only just realised that Britain is an island. <laughs> If you saw this speech, it was, the phrase he used was a peculiar geographic entity. He said he'd looked at the map and realised we were surrounded by water. <laughs> he then said he had no idea that, it, it, until now, he said, I didn't realise quite how much trade came through Dover and Calais. <laughs> the two nearest points uh, between uh, the UK. It's like he'd never seen a map before. Fucking hell, we're surrounded by water. This is incredible. Well, I had no idea. Oh, Northern Ireland. Oh, of course, it's connected to Ireland, isn't it? That's why they're all getting annoyed. Yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> Fuck, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. But the Falklands are over there. Oh, shit, right. Yes, now I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on a minute. This globe's round. This is... Uh, <laughs> this is blowing my mind. Incredible individual. Uh, he's now gone. Uh, Karen Bradley. I mean, it's been an incredible month because Brexit has overshadowed so many things. A lot of other stories got missed. Karen Bradley, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, gave an interview a few weeks ago where she said she hadn't fully appreciated, uh, no, she said she hadn't realised at all that in Northern Ireland, nationalists vote for nationalists and unionists vote for unionists. <laughs> now, I would say that was like, that, uh, just sort of given, uh, quite apart, she hasn't even got onto the IRA yet. I mean, it's going to get very. Very shocking for her when she figures out exactly what's been going on. So I hadn't realised that in some unionist communities, they won't vote for a nationalist at all. In fact, in some areas, they don't even bother standing. Now, this is below GCSE, and she's the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, right? Not just a backbench MP, which we badly know. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. She basically got less knowledge about Northern Ireland than Alan Partridge did. <laughs> Sunday, bloody Sunday. <laughs> You've got to wash the car, read the papers, really, 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 really sums up the frustration of a Sunday. Sunday. Bloody Sunday. You knew more than our Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Uh, deeply worrying. Um, it would be like, I mean, not knowing that is so worrying for any Member of Parliament, I would have been shocked. For the Secretary of State, particularly shocking. I mean, what, what other revelations are we going to get from this government? A Defence Secretary going, guys, you're not going to believe this. We've got an army. <laughs> you know, they kill people. I've just met some of them, young lads, livid, ready to kill. Turns out they've been killing people for hundreds of years. They'll go wherever, wherever we send them, and they'll kill whoever we tell them. It's fucking brilliant, isn't it? Someone should have told me. So that was slightly frustrating. Uh, Nadine Doris was part of the uh, European Research Group who were uh, putting letters into the Prime Minister, although she, she gave two phenomenal interviews, Nadine Doris, uh, commenting on the current uh, withdrawal agreement, uh, current government policy that's half in, half out, said, this deal is a sham. It leaves us with no voice in Europe and no MEPs. <laughs> now, Nadine voted to leave. Uh, <laughs> she wants to leave the European Union and is incensed to be left with no MEP. I mean, it's beyond... Thick is too kind a word for how mad that is. You know when you talk to... I don't know if you've ever met expats, but it's that sort of thing where they're going, it's great out in here, Dubai, but we can't get BBC One. <laughs> yeah, because you left the country, you fucking idiot. 
That's really weird, this new job. They haven't let me keep my old boss. It's really ruining things for me. <laughs> so Nadine Doris is out there. She also, uh, she also said that, um, she says, after handing in her letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister, she said, I don't want to oust the Prime Minister. And I certainly don't want to oust the second only female Prime Minister we've had. But I have sent my letter in. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you might have seen, did an impromptu press conference uh, outside Parliament. Uh, to be fair to him, he's remarkably calm under pressure. Um, <laughs> There's a whole media scrum and he's just there fielding uh, questions. No, I, I, don't, I don't think it will be an issue. I, I do think we will reach 48. Yes, Sky News. It's very, very like a sort of posh post-match interview after a, Well, I think the boys have done well. You know, I said to them, it's every game as it, You take every game as it comes at the moment. And um, you know, we were 1-0 down at half-time. The gaffers had a word. And we've gone out there. And you know, we've got a result. And... Um, <laughs> I fucking ran out of gas, didn't it? But, uh, <laughs> my favourite letter of them all, I read all the resignation letters, was from a guy called Marc Francois, who's obviously living with Theresa May for a number of different reasons, many of which probably aren't her fault. Because the start of his letter, you can find this online, he says, Dear Graham, to Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, and then typed, but boldened, there's only one sentence in his whole letter of boldened, and it says, Dear Graham, and then in bold letters it just says, She just doesn't listen. <laughs> Trouble at home, Mark. <laughs> Mummy issues, mate. You might as well have just started, Dear Graham. All we get is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we just have a bloke now? Look, we tried it with a woman, it's just not working. <laughs> Absolutely desperate. Um, he also says, and this is so sad, in his letter he says, I have served my country in the Territorial Army during the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An army that's not an army, and a war that's not a war. <laughs> I've seen more active service than him. I was a scout during the Cola Wars. <laughs> oh, very dark days for this country. Uh, it, of course, is part of a group called the European Research Group, and they are part of a group called Global Britain, uh, who launched their event uh, to try and uh, seize the initiative in the Brexit debate. Global Britain, and you may have seen the event, which was seven old white men. Um, so not particularly global. Very British, but not very global. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg was the youngest person there. Um, if you don't count the years that he, um, he had in Transylvania. Uh, in uh, oh, What's the word I'm looking for? He lay dormant. <laughs> if you don't count the years he lay dormant in, uh, in, in Transylvania. They've released an alternative withdrawal agreement with a great title. It's called Fact, Not Friction. Sounds more like a sexual health leaflet. <laughs> Fact, not friction. How to introduce lube into your sex life. <laughs> but I've read some of it, and it's not as exciting as the, uh, as, as the title suggests. There's some really good lines that, that leap. I'm sure you've all read this stuff. Um, early on in their briefing note, Fact, not friction, uh, Global Britain say, the decision to leave the EU is a political one, not an economic one. No shit. <laughs> Secondly, now this is it, the whole thing is there will be no, you can hear Reese Mogg's voice throughout the whole thing. It is inconceivable that there will be any trouble. The EU, it's not in either side's interest for there to be any, the whole thing is this wish list, vague uh, language. At one point though, they do say this, just a little bit in small print, conceivably, some firms will initially be unfamiliar with customs procedures, which might cause or excuse delays in Calais, but businesses will soon learn the procedures. <laughs> 
It's got, you know that, re- you know when people first become Tories when they're sort of 18, and they say, well, I, I'm sure if, uh, if working class people want a bit of extra money, and they just ask their boss and they explain themselves, I'm sure most bosses would, pr- would give them an extra few pounds. No, no, I think most slave owners were pretty benevolent chaps, and if, if people wanted their freedom and asked for it properly, I'm pretty sure most of them would have got it. Now, I, I think both, I think they entered into that. Um, there's a phenomenal bit of small print. So they use this whole thing, they've got all these stats, they've got all these predictions. It's, to be fair, it's well-researched and well-sourced, even if some of the sources aren't particularly um, good. Um, <laughs> but just in case you're sort of taken on too much by, by, the, by, the, um, by the document, it says this in it, and this is in proper small print at the end. Although the information compiled in our research is produced to the best of our ability, its accuracy is not guaranteed. Any persons using Global Britain's research or communication does so solely at their own risk. (laughs) And Global Britain Limited shall be under no liability whatsoever. I don't know what people, I don't know what they expect people to do on the back of this document. There's a whole list underneath it. It sounds like the end of a a sort of, of a car advert on local radio. Global Britain Limited or any of its suppliers make any warranties expressed or implied as to the actually adequacy, quality or fitness for any particular purpose of the information or the services for a particular purpose or use and all such warranties are expressly excluded to the fullest extent such that warranties may be excluded by law. Your home may be at risk if you do not keep up monthly repayments. <laughs> you bear all risks from any uses or results of using any... You bear risk for using the information. So it's not particularly, um, you know, it doesn't instill you with confidence, does it, the sort of stuff they're, uh, they're peddling. Uh, there are various types of Brexit, of course, are being sold. Soft Brexit, hard Brexit. Uh, there is, uh, has anyone here heard of Operation Yellowhammer? This is to prepare for what's being dubbed zombie Brexit. This is official government operation called Operation Yellowhammer, which is a, a genuine concern by civil servants in Whitehall that we might not be able to purify our water within a week of leaving the European Union, and that we're all going to become dehydrated and basically start eating each other. Um, now, if we can't purify the water... Uh, to be fair, I live in London, so uh, I don't think I'll notice much difference in the tap water. I live in Camden, so I won't notice if people turn into zombies either, so I'm probably fine. But that's the thing with Brexit, isn't it? Whatever Brexit, you get hard, soft, zombie, whatever. You know, it's, it's pros and cons, isn't it? You know, we, we get a seat at the WTO, but we do start eating the living. <laughs> just depends what sort of Brexit you fancy. Um, so that's on the cards. Um, I can imagine Boris getting behind a zombie Brexit. You know, I think, by the way, a zombie Brexit is not to be feared. Uh, yeah, I, 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 first, it cures any need for a... Uh, it makes us totally self-sufficient in terms of agriculture, by the way. <laughs> Chewing at each other, there's no need for crops anymore. Uh, no need for energy supply or indeed any food whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Imagine the American president. I, I like zombies, by the way. They're very good people. Very good people. I employ a lot of them. I employ a lot of zombies. And let me tell you, a lot of them are cleverer than me. So, good people. Very good people. Um, another perhaps chilling uh, fact about this is the problem is that what frustrates me about the government is I think a lot of us just want reassurance. Whether you'll leave or remain or don't know or whatever, we just want to be reassured that this isn't going to be a disaster. Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, was asked this week, could he guarantee that people wouldn't die as a result of a no-deal Brexit? And he said, no. I can't guarantee that people won't die. That scares the shit out of the Secretary of State for Health said, whatever happens, I can't guarantee that you will live. I mean, surely that's the most important thing that comes out of this, is that we stay alive. 
<laughs> I just think it's very... Uh, 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 just lie for crying out loud. Uh, it does worry me. It worries me that he's effectively turned into the sort of political equivalent of Ivan Drago <laughs> from Rocky IV. <laughs> if they die, they die. <laughs> Quite an obscure film reference, that. But <laughs> I thought people would be more in tune with Rocky IV. You know Rocky IV, if he dies, he dies. Well, this is not going on the podcast anyway, so... That's, I mean, it, to be honest, the way he structured his answer wasn't clear that he meant that it was as a result of NHS services buckling under the pressure. He said, I can't guarantee that people won't die, but he didn't say it was because the NHS won't treat them. It might just be because he goes on a gun rampage. <laughs> I'm so livid with Brexit, I'm going to start shooting people. Uh, of course, uh, the withdrawal agreement uh, is out. Uh, has anyone read the withdrawal agreement? 585 pages of it. Uh, has anyone read the political declaration? Yeah, yeah Emily's read it. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I won't pub quiz you on it, so it's fine. But uh, it's, um, I've read the political deck. I've downloaded the withdrawal agreement. I've, I've read the political agreement. It's very vague. The whole thing, the moment you start reading it, you realise it's really, there's not a great deal in there. It's all, we should work towards this, we'll try and do this. Um, one of the lines that really comes out in security that slightly rings alarm bells is that um, if the union agree, Britain will be involved in, in high-level security situations to informal meetings only. I just don't think security is the sort of thing you can talk about informally. <laughs> yeah, how many terrorists you got? Yeah, we got shitloads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I can say. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> Don't write it down, mate. Fuck it out, it's informal. <laughs> I do worry about it. Of course, they're trying to convince everyone, aren't they? This is the thing. Theresa May realises that her own benches aren't enough to get the deal through. She's got a lot of Tory rebels, a lot of Labour people aren't going to support, the SNP aren't, the Lib Dems aren't. So she's trying to get over some Labour people, and she's dispatched a guy called Gavin Barwell uh, to convince Labour MPs. He was an MP, and now he's a special advisor in Downing Street. And apparently, he's tried to convince some Labour MPs this week uh, with a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> Which just feels so small. Now, this is the biggest, really, the biggest matter of state since the Second World War. And they're trying to resolve it with a, basically a, a, a sort of shitty office PowerPoint meeting. <laughs> OK, morning, everyone. You, the coffee's at the back. Uh, please don't touch the sandwiches. They're for the breakout sessions. Uh, <laughs> did you go and get the handouts? No, OK, I'll hand them out now. Uh, sorry, I can't get the projector to work. Is this... Uh, <laughs> that's not an analogy for Brexit. Shut up. Right, I'm going to try and get this... Uh, <laughs> Now, some of you may know about Gavin Barwell and his uh, internet past. Uh, he once uh, tweeted that a press release he got from the Labour Party over Gmail was accompanied at the bottom um, by an advert for uh, a website called Date Arab Girls. And he tweeted about it. He said, what's all this? Why is the Labour Party sending out press releases sponsored by Date Arab Girls? And the Labour Party replied, the adverts you see on Google are based on your internet search history. <laughs> Which, to be fair, would have spiced up that Brexit presentation. <laughs> both the Union and the United Kingdom both agree that in the event of a no-deal Brexit, there, hot, there are hot singles in your area. <laughs> can think of at least three Labour MPs that would have brought on side, actually, so it might not be the worst idea. Uh, Dan Chuck would have been number one. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's technically independent. <laughs> but... Uh, Footage is, uh, footage is of, of Boris Johnson when he was Foreign Secretary, a new BBC series called uh, Inside the Foreign Office has uh, revealed some wonderful footage of Boris Johnson trying to woo the people of Portugal. Wherever he goes, he makes these little videos for, um, 
for social media, and he can't grasp a very basic principle. He starts off with, uh, Portugal is our fourth largest trading partner. And say, no, 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 Foreign Secretary, we're Portugal's fourth largest. <laughs> he said, well, uh, uh, what's the difference? Right? Couldn't understand basic maths. There's a bit in it where he says, and Portugal, of course, is where James Bond was born. And said, no, no, it's where the idea of James Bond... <laughs> Ian Fleming thought of it while he was in Portugal. Like, James Bond, I don't know if you've seen the films, he's definitely not Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been very obvious. <laughs> Bond was, there's a bit in it, he goes, and of course, great allies during World War II. Uh, no, hang on, were they neutral? Uh, no, what, what, what happened in World War II? Fucking <laughs> hell. He might as well have just gone, it's great to be here in Portugal. Uh, uh, you know, Nando's is here. <laughs> Great part of British life uh, continue to uh, to be so. Um, it was a great thing on Brexit, by the way, and I felt really sorry for Rory Stewart, who's quite a likable Tory MP, but it was on Five Live with Emma Barnett, trying to defend the Prime Minister's deal. He said, "Well, look, I, I agree with the deal, and uh, you know th that's why it's a good deal. Eighty percent of the British public uh, agree with it." And she went, "Eighty percent? Where have you got that from?" And he went, "Well, I, I, I made it up." <laughs> So I just based on, you know, 10% will like it, 10% won't like it, 80% are behind it. Good on him for admitting it. Um, and in one of the, uh, one of the most bizarre, uh, actually, uh, interventions at the weekend on, uh, on the Andrew Marr show, Tony Blair has been interviewed on Andrew Marr. There's a particular clip of it, of course, friend of the show, friend of the show. Uh, he's, uh, although that's true of Tommy Robinson as well, we don't want to say that. Uh, sure friend is the right word, but I'm sure Jeremy will let me know what sort of language you can use about stuff like that. But, um, Tony Blair gave an interview, uh, and one of the clips that went viral, and it sounds so weird when you've got this statesman saying it, he, he went, literally, why are we doing it? <laughs> He's talking like a teenager now. I mean, literally, like, OMFG, right? <laughs> Brexit is, uh, you know, in my view, uh, you know, summing up, really, I'd just say it's sort of smiley face, smiley face turd emoji. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've already been uh, a wonderful crowd. Uh, we have a phenomenal guest who, uh, well, I'll, I'll give it a, a, an introduction, but uh, it is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. <laughs> always true, always true. The day will come when it's not true. <laughs> I said someone, um, anyway, someone I just want to chat to um, informally about security. Uh, but we have a phenomenal, I mean, tonight's guest really is a, a, a real star of, uh, of, of British politics. I'm delighted she's here tonight. Uh, as always, you are a wonderful crowd. And, um, oh, just to let you know, the guest for the Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre, I can reveal. Uh, on the 19th of December will be Jess Phillips and Sarah Wollaston. And on the 20th will be Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles. So uh, a wonderful doubleheader at the Leicester Square Theatre. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've been wonderful. See you in a bit. Oh, thank you very much. Oh God, I thought, that, uh, I thought the lights had been turned off. The lights had gone out? What's the old... Um, the lights have gone out. You turn the lights out. Turn the lights out? Well, the last person... Oh, yeah. fuck it. 1992, the song. <laughs> right. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a, a, an absolutely brilliant guest. One of... Uh, so last month we had Carwin Jones, uh, and this month we have Emily Thornbury, and they were the two single best features not just of the Labour Party conference this year, but I think of the whole conference season. It made you realise there are very few people, not just in Labour, but in any of the major parties now, capable of delivering those big set-piece political moments. And tonight's guest 
is head and shoulders, not just at party conferences, but in Parliament, one of the single greatest parliamentary performers. Uh, one of the great frustrations I have of watching Parliament at the moment, particularly Prime Minister's questions, is that the skill of Parliament, particularly on the front bench, seems to have been lost. That ability to really command and really punish an enemy. Tonight's guest is arguably the single greatest uh, performer at the Dispatch Box in Parliament today. She's an absolute hero. Please give a huge reception to Emily Thornbury. <laughs> Around here. You want to say? It's not that hard, is it? <laughs> Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. I should have said as well, uh, Shadow First Secretary of State. Yeah. Which is a great role, isn't it? Because it it it, it gives you status, but there's really no brief to it. Well, is that right? You do you do um what you do is you're you're kind of deputy in Parliament, so so um, when they can't do Prime Minister's questions, if Theresa May is not available or Jeremy's not available, then I sort of sub, basically. And you're the best at it. I enjoy it. <laughs> oh, but it's so much better when you're doing it. <laughs> well, I don't have to go up against Theresa May, do I? <laughs> so it's a bit easier, I think. So it was Damien Green that you were going up against for a while. Yeah. But he, he got caught wanking at work. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, that's, so that's not happening anymore. Who would it be that you'd go with? David Liddington? Would David it be? Liddington. He's a nice enough chap, isn't he? He's a nice enough chap. So with Damien Green, what, you know, people have a relationship, they're opposite number, in a professional relationship, they're opposite number. Did, did he ever strike you as a bit off? <laughs> <laughs> he was always very affable, you know, but I don't tend to talk to them very much. It's best not to, really, I think. I mean, I've talked to them occasionally. I talk to Boris occasionally, but not very much. I remember walking down... You know, we had um, the Queen was opening Parliament, and you have this thing where you people process down. Yes, I love that. Anyway, so I was talking to Boris, and uh, and he'd just been made um, Foreign Secretary, and I was saying to him, "So who's in your team, Boris?" And he's going, Whoa. "I said, you really, really ought to know this. You really, really <laughs> ought to know who your shadow, who your ministers are." And he didn't. I mean, it was terrible. It was really terrible. Yeah, and he was um, no, no. I mean, he, it was it was it was great fun shadowing Boris because you just never had any idea what he was going to do next. You know, I mean, he would just, you know, he would start off. You could see he'd been given a script and he would kind of stick to it to begin with. And we have just on the side of the politicians, we have where the civil servants are. Yeah. And you could see they were holding on, and the whites of their knuckles would get whiter and whiter as they were sort of holding on. Like, oh God, what's he going to say next? What's going to come out next? What will we need to correct? You know, so you just never knew. You just never knew. Once he'd lost concentration and just kind of went into Boris, you know, anything, anything could happen. But in a way, is it a bit like a, a cup draw where you'd rather be up against a bigger team? Like you'd rather get a Boris and have to face him every week than have to go against Damien Green or, or someone like that. It's more exciting to go up against Boris, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to tell him off on. <laughs> I used to spend my time telling him off, basically. That's what I used to do. You know, and I used to say, for God's sake, man, you know, if she doesn't have, you know, the authority or the strength to be able to sack you, just do the decent thing and resign. I used to say that practically all the time. You know, <laughs> never paid any attention, but that's what I well, used to say. Well, he did in the end. In the end, he did. In the end, he did. So what was your, what, how, were, how were relations between you and Boris then, sort of outside of the, of the chamber? He, he did get quite upset at me. Really? So he's yeah. quite sensitive then? He's quite thin-skinned. 
What would you say? Oh, Emily, for God's sake. No, no, no. He'd be very kind of nice to my face, but, you know, various, you know, so various things that you'd expect the foreign secretary to assist with, the shadow foreign secretary with, kind of just got cut off. So I told this joke at Labour Party conference about paternity and, and <laughs> <laughs> it was just a joke. What, uh, what was the joke? So again? basically, it was about it was about Brexit, right? And how yeah. Boris is really upset about Brexit and how everyone's trying to blame them for Brexit. And I couldn't understand why that was, you know, given that frankly, surely he is responsible for Brexit, and yeah. maybe there should be paternity tests for Brexit. I know he doesn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, oh. uh, I said something like, you know, get, you know, you could go off and you'd be like being on Jeremy Kyle, you know, <laughs> which is, uh, could, you know, there he would be on the other side. And Jeremy Kyle would be going, you know, it'd be, it'd be kind of, well, Boris, I'm afraid this one's yours. <laughs> you know, you are as well. Must have been that wild night out you had with Michael Coe. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway, I'm told he got upset. He got really very upset. I would love to see Boris on the Jeremy Kyle show. Yeah. <laughs> Double DNA lie detector. Oh, my word. Just to sit when Kyle does that thing where he goes, we asked him if he told any lies during the referendum. What did the lie detector say? Says you're a dirty little liar. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see that. Sadly, I don't think we'll get to see it. Um, so now you're, you're one of Labour's biggest stars. Um, I mean, how does that feel? Because you've been an MP since 2005. Rose to prominence quite quickly. But now, particularly in the, in the Corbyn years, have become sort of major players. I think, to be honest with you, I just live in the moment. I think you just get on with, you're so busy that you just, it's just, you know, what am I doing now? What's next? Right, I'm doing this. Right, Brexit, what's next? Brexit, this is. Brexit, Brexit. Now, there is a lot of Brexit, 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 but it's kind of Brexit and then this, and then there's Brexit and then there's that. And then there's, you know, we have to kind of, you just have to keep going. It's actually... It's to be robust is probably the most important quality mm. in a politician. You've just got to be able to keep going, and so there are times you know, I don't get really get a chance to sort of st to stop. Um, so I might be, you know, I, I went to Scotland on holiday and we were in an island and we kind of, and the, the fact that people kind of recognised me such a long way away from anywhere and they would just would bump into someone on a hilltop and they would go, oh, it's Emily Thornberry, can I have a selfie? And you just at that point you realise. Mm, yeah, this isn't quite like my holidays used to be. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, but then your holiday in the UK, I suppose. If you're going to Mauritius and getting spotted, that would be. But then impressive. you always know that you're with Brits. So I was in Addis Ababa Airport, yes, changing planes. You know, been on a flight for 15 hours, feeling completely wrecked, and people were asking for selfies. That was a bit of a shock. But, <laughs> but they were British tourists, you know, that you met in the airport. I suppose at least they're asking for selfies and not not hurling abuse. And that's true. No, no, people are nice. People I mean, it must be nice. awkward being on a plane, particularly if you're in the normal bit, um, and you're sort of, you know, queuing up for the toilet or whatever, with three other people. There's fucking Emily Thornberry on the flight. Easy jet from Malaga, what's, what's she been up to? <laughs> Stretching the brief a bit. You do get asked for selfies in the strangest places, so I was, uh, I, well, no, not necessarily so. I was, uh, people sometimes don't kind of think, you know, they think, oh, let's have a selfie with Emily Thornberry. So I, I went to, I went to this momentum thing and there were loads of kids and they were very excited and they were like, oh, it's Emily Thornberry and they came, came crashing towards me with pints of beer in their hands and I was completely soaked. I was like literally sloshing in my shoes and I had to get to something else. So I went off to the loo's and I'm standing under the hand dryer trying to dry my clothes off and my hair is sticking up like this. I know this because someone took a selfie with me and put it on Twitter. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, what do you do? 
<laughs> what do you do? Well, I suppose that's quite a nice because one of the, a lot of politicians in the modern era experience, you know, the, the downsides of Twitter that people mm. are abusive, and we constantly talk mm. about the tone of politics. Mm. Particularly, female politicians get it, it worse than men. So actually, it's quite nice that you, a lot of your experience actually is very positive. I mean, you know, you're getting stalked on holiday in the Scottish Islands, but apart from that, it's, it's pleasant that people want to interact with you and be nice. I think that's right. I think that there is a there is a lot of negative stuff, but it, people underestimate the positives. And so I do get some lovely messages, although sometimes they are odd. I mean, during the general election, I got all kinds of extraordinary proposals, which frankly, for a woman of my age, was quite affirming. <laughs> <laughs> and I would show them to my husband and go, look, see, still got it. <laughs> and he's a judge, so he's not allowed to be involved in, in politics, but he's allowed to go to the count. That's the one thing he's allowed to do. So he goes to the count. He's quite keen on going to the count. I wasn't sure why. And as we're going along, he says, I'm going to put my arm around you so they all know you're married. He's <laughs> <laughs> wow. really been playing on his mind. <laughs> so let's just, so just a couple of things then. So, are, these, are these like members of the public emailing, or in what format are these proposals coming? They, they come on on Twitter and on Instagram. What sort of stuff do people say? Like Emily, will you marry me? Or? Um, <laughs> there was one guy who sent me this message, and he said, he said, Emily. I think you're well bang tidy. <laughs> I had to ask my children what that meant. <laughs> and then they said, uh, and uh, although I don't agree with your politics, um, I just want to say that I'm not that uh, uh, superficial because, and I can't remember, he said something or other that he, he, that he agreed with me on. And, uh, and would I like to go out on a date? And I said, and he then told me what, how old he was. He was like 35 or something. And I said, you know, well, I'm, I'm very flattered. Thank you very much. Um, I have actually been with my husband longer than you have been alive. <laughs> so the answer's yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yes. So there's someone who approached you on Twitter. So someone who can use social media, doesn't agree with your politics. <laughs> Might have been a Blairite. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I'm 36, so I'm ruled out. But that's so with the count. I mean, <laughs> do you think your husband does get a little bit kind of chippy about it? He does. It's really sweet. <laughs> it's really sweet. I mean, yeah, we've been together a long time, but it's very sweet how he is. Yeah. I think it's cool that you replied. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of people wouldn't, would they? They just go, oh, the guy's a creep. <laughs> yeah, but it was so funny. <laughs> well banged <tidy. laughs> <laughs> I mean, It's such a good, you know what's really like, <laughs> it was sort of early on in the interview. <laughs> so much of talk about one, and obviously we're going to talk about Brexit, but it, it, is, it feels like such a heavy, depressing time. Mm. But I often mm. think about Boris, I completely disagree with him. I don't like the way he behaves. I can't forgive him for what he did in the referendum and for so many other things. But there's something about people who enjoy doing politics. And Farage has got it, and Boris has got it. And in a very different way, you've got it. Like, you look like you enjoy it. It uh, doesn't look like I'm living my best life. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I mean, there is nothing like being involved in politics. It is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's really hard, and it's, and it's hard work, and it's relentless. But, you know, it's, there's nothing like it. I used to really enjoy being a barrister. I, did, I was a barrister for 20 years. Um, and that was great, you know, but this is so much better. You know, because you have, you have the chance of being able to change the country for the better. You know, but you have to persuade people, so you have to talk to people, you have to learn from people, you have to get about, and actually, what could be better than that? 
But so many, but that's true of every um, politician, isn't it? Is is that you know they enjoy the sort of you know stand up for what they believe in, helping people that they think need help. But even with all that, for some of them, they don't look like they enjoy. You know, yeah. Ed Miliband didn't look like he enjoyed leadership. Maybe leadership's different. So that sort yeah, of thing. Leadership. But a lot of politicians do look tired, miserable, <laughs> browbeaten, scared. You know, it, when I think of modern politics, it feels like such a a, a, um, a, a sort of browbeaten place. Well, I tell you, okay, let me tell you this. I mean. I, I know we don't necessarily agree on Jeremy Corbyn, but there's one thing I think that we would agree on, which is that he's authentic, right? He's authentic. What you see is what you get with Jeremy, and that has been really liberating mm. because, you know, he can be... He has just been himself, and you just think, well, if the leader's going to be like that, why don't I just do the same? Mm. And that's, that is liberating. You know, don't pretend to be anything else. Just be yourself. But People like always that say that. They always say, they always say, oh, it's very interesting meeting you, seeing you on TV because you're just like on, you know, on TV like you are in real life. Well, yeah, why not? Well, I mean, why not? You know, I have time to do anything else. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people talk about the Commons in a, in a way that, that a lot of MPs don't seem to like it, but you seem to relish it as an arena. Mm. Is that the law background or is that something else inside you? Hating Tories. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's certainly a big part of it. Um, but I do think you genuinely uh, hate Tories? Hate? I mean, there are individuals that I have met, you know, that, that I get on with, and, and, you know, that's fine. But I think I do hate what they stand for. I do. I mean, I don't, you know, I think that the only force for good in British politics is the Labour Party. I just do. I think that we are the force for progressive change, and, and that's what I believe. I do. I know I agree with me, but I mean, that's what I believe. And I think that, that when the Tories get into power, they row us back as a country, and then we have to go in and fix it and push it, push it forward again. That's what I think. I mean, I'm uh, obviously somebody sort of centre left. I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with that, but there are there's good and bad in all parties, isn't there? Mm. You know, there, there's yeah. a lot of progressive Tories who, you know, people like Anna Soubry, I identify with more at the moment, um, and, and we will have conservatives, and I love uh, ticket buying conservatives. So defend all the wonderful conservatives here tonight. But you know, uh, Ken Clark, I agree with. You know, the, I think of Ken Clark. I think, well, I probably have more in common with Ken Clark than I do with Jeremy Corbyn on certain things. And in terms of good and bad, anti-Semitism has been a real problem for the sort of moral argument for Labour. That's been a really, and, and still is a persistent problem with the idea that, you know, John O'Farrell in his book. Um, Things going to get better. Always says, "Yeah, well, Labour people were just nicer than Tories," mm. and I sort of used to subscribe to that. And now I, 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 I don't because I just think I've met some of the oddly right. Jacob Rees-Mogg, whatever I think of his politics, is one of the nicest people I've ever mm. met. Mm. Um, there are some people on the hard, you know. I went. You know how we. I've met to, Ken Livingstone. You know, you know how we have to tell we have to tell MPs when we go and canvass in their seats. Right? Yeah. And so I was canvassing for the opposition in Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat. So I have to go and I have to write to him, you know, as a courtesy and say, I'm going to be in your seat. And he wrote back and said, oh, what fun, Emily. Do come round for tea afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did you? No. <laughs> does, does that count as a proposal? Was Jacob Rees-Mogg? <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> um, so we do have to deal with Brexit, because obviously it's, it's all sort of kicked off particularly, I mean, it's always kicking off, but it's kicked off particularly uh, in the last week. In terms of the government's current policy, can it get through the House of Commons? No. So then what happens? Will they even put it to a vote, do you think? I think... I don't understand, in a way, why they don't just put it to a vote tomorrow, in a way, because we all know that it's not going to win. Um, and the question is, will it lose by 100? Will it lose by 50? It doesn't matter, actually. I mean, they're doing this kind of... They're trying to, to, to change the narrative so that, you know, oh, if she loses by 100 votes, it won't be that bad. Mm. Yes, it will. Yeah, this is the biggest single decision that we have to make as a country since the Second World War, for heaven's sake. If you are the leader of this country and you cannot get your proposal through, that is a big deal, even if you lose by two votes. You know, it does seem to me that this idea of expectation management in these circumstances is crazy. You know, so they've got, uh, how many days? They've got 11 days, 12 days, 14, whatever, a couple of weeks. And we're just, what are we doing? We're just watching our country, like in a car, just slowly driving towards a wall. And what's she doing? She's like, I don't know what she's doing. I mean, she's like wandering around the country, talking to, you know, farmers and... I mean, just because she can't win her back benches, and so it's as if she's sort of softening the country up. You know, when I... I don't know what she's doing. I really don't know what she's doing. And, and I have learned that they don't necessarily have a plan. I think there's something in us which makes us think that because Tories think they were born to rule that somehow they might be good at it or they might have some sort of strategy, but this lot clearly don't. They clearly don't. They do not know what they're doing. And the level of incompetence is extraordinary. And so I don't trust her to have any plan now. I think she's just hoping that something's going to turn up. And that's what they've been doing for the last two and a half years, hoping something's going to turn up. In terms of the deal it's our country, you know? Well, it's immensely frustrating, I think, for people who vote Leave and Remain. I just think the way it's been handled, you know, whether you vote for it or not, I think, I think a lot of people are immensely frustrated. The deal itself has taken a great deal of technical work. And whether I think it's the best possible deal or not, there's no doubt that a lot of work has gone into that deal and the Prime Minister has probably got the best deal she can get. The EU27 are saying they won't give any other deal. Juncker and, and Tusk are saying there's, there's no other deal on the table. So Labour's position is let us negotiate a better deal. But at the moment, the EU are saying that's not possible. Well, where do I start with that? I think the first thing is, is that I don't believe that that's the best deal possible. I think there are certainly better deals. And I think that although there is lots of technical details, the problem with our civil service who, you know, are, you know, we have great brains in the civil service, but they need political direction. And part of their problem has been over the last couple of years has been that because the Tories have been fighting amongst themselves about what it is that they want to, what their negotiating position is, they've not been able to negotiate. They've not been able to agree amongst themselves what it is that they want, so we haven't been able to get it because they have just we have just been watching a psychodrama of the Tories just pulling themselves apart, and they still don't agree. That's what's going on. 
What we have said is that we should be in a customs union, a permanent customs union. We should be close to the single market. We should have a common rule book. Obviously, you know, we're not putting down a whole lot of stupid red lines. We will negotiate. And that's what we have said. And if we had had the last two years, that's what we would have been doing. You know, but what does she do? I mean, people talk about that, that uh, conference speech that she made when the furniture fell apart and someone gave her a, you know, P40 and all that, you know, as being the disastrous speech. Actually, the disastrous speech was the one the year before. Because the year before, she starts putting down the most ridiculous red lines, pushing us to the hardest possible Brexit. I was in... I was in Brussels the week before Tory party conference and I was explaining what Labour's position was and I was saying, you know, we will need to negotiate particularly on there being some changes to immigration and they were saying, oh, it can't happen. I was going, well, let's think about it. I'm sure there are ways we can discuss this. And then I went out like a week or two after she'd made the speech and they said, Emily, there's no point even talking to you. In fact, you don't need two years because if we're going to go on what she said, there's nothing to negotiate. You're just basically off. There's no deal at all. And she's been rowing back from that ever since. And the reason she did that speech was to try to shore up her position in the Tory party mm. because of the hard Brexiteers. That was not to do with what was good for our country. That was to do with how am I going to keep the Tory party together? Just like the reason we had the referendum was because Cameron wanted to keep the Tory party together in the run-up to a general election, mm. which he never thought that he was going to win. And then he won, and then he had to deliver, and then he failed, and then he ran away. I mean, it's a great part of history. I suppose the, the problem with politics is that it's often a choice between two imperfect scenarios. And I think the problem is, is that people might think that Theresa May, you know, that this is a bad deal, Remainers and Leavers are united in, 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 in not uh, being enamoured with it. How many people genuinely think that, firstly, Jeremy Corbyn can get a better deal? And secondly, talk about the customs union and the single market, that's not what Jeremy's always been saying. He said trigger Article 50 early. He said early on we can't be in the customs union or the single market. And it feels like Keir Starmer and perhaps yourself have had to sort of incrementally get him to a sort of more pro-European position. Well, I mean, is, he, is, this always been a, is this always been a sort of strategic direction where he said, look, let the public move first and I'll follow? Or is he genuinely cantankerous about the EU and is being sort of pushed by people like yourself and, and Mr Starmer? More than two years ago, I did Prime Minister's questions for Jeremy and I said, we on this side of the House believe that the only way to get a soft border in Northern Ireland is to be in a customs union. That's what we believe and that's what you should do. I mean, I said that more than two years ago. Not many people were listening, but that's what we said. You know, that was two years ago. But as for Jeremy, I think that Jeremy has other things that he's more interested in than Europe. I, that's the truth. Um, I'm very interested, you know, uh, Keir Starmer's very interested. There's a number of us very interested. You know, and we have a Brexit subcommittee, which nobody knows about because it doesn't leak because we never <laughs> fight, you know, because we sort things out together. And, it, and, and politics is a team sport. But it is you know, the Jeremy's strengths are different to that. And yeah. Jeremy, you know, the, the, the negotiations will be done by, you know, so, okay, so you may have Brexit secretaries that you've had until now who, you know, are spending their time finding out where Dover is or, you know, <laughs> spending their time in, you know, I don't know, going off and... I don't know what the hell <laughs> God knows what he was doing, you know, sitting in duty-free buying Toblerones or whatever he was doing. You know, but, I mean, they may not have been particularly proactive, but, yeah. you know, the dynamics in our team is different. I think it's just, obviously, what... The, the problem, obviously, is for Labour people, I think, and for um, Remain people, is that the Labour Party, since it changed its stance from the sort of Benite left anti-EU stance, has been so openly pro-European until now no, no, and there's always just that smother particularly with the leadership that you can just sort of sense that he doesn't like the eu there's no, there's no, always that indefinable 
With no, but you see, I think I think that what that what Jeremy said during the referendum actually was really was again just authentic. He said he said I've thought about it. I used to be against the EU, but now I'm in favour. Though I'll only give it seven out of ten, and I think there's reforms that need making. And actually, I think he spoke for a large part of the country when he said that. And, you know, rather than David Cameron, who was slickly saying, "Oh, I give it ten out of ten, and there's nothing wrong with it." Obviously, nonsense. Obviously. You know, but but you know, at least Jeremy was telling the truth there on it. But he's not particularly interested. But he's definitely an internationalist, and our party are pro-European. We campaign to remain. We just lost the referendum, and above everything else, we're Democrats, and we go into this with a heavy heart. But you know, we had a de we had a referendum. We went up and down the country. I went up and down the country. And I said to people, "This is a really important decision. You've got to think about this carefully because you know, we're going to go on what you say." And we had a referendum, and we have to deliver, much as we don't want to. But democracy is really important, and there are really big anti-democratic forces around the world at the moment, and we're not going to be mm. part of that. We must not feed that. You know, that that's what worries me. That really worries me. So in terms of uh, the, the uh, Shadow Cabinet Subcommittee and the Shadow Cabinet, so when Europe comes up and, and you're animated about it and Keir Starmer's animated about it, whoever else, will Jeremy sort of say, oh, not this again. Can we, can we please talk, <laughs> talk about Venezuela for once? <laughs> <laughs> How is that indifference expressed? <laughs> I, I don't leak. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, you know, cabinet subcommittees and uh, the cabinet, I don't, I don't, I don't leak, I don't. So in terms of Sorry, a, it'd be boring, but I just no, don't, do okay. it. I don't, don't do it. In terms of a, a people's vote or a second referendum or referendum on the deal, whatever mm. it is, it does feel that Labour sort of incrementally get there. Now, John McDonald's given an interview today with Laura Koonsberg where he seems to agree with the proposition that a, a referendum is inevitable. That is an incremental shift from the Labour Party conference position, which is that not everything's left on the table, which was sort of, you know, didn't really mean anything. It's sort of words to get through a conference motion, which is absolutely fine. What is happening? Is Labour coming towards a, a people's vote? policy, or is John McDonnell, as he occasionally does, outflanking Corbyn so that when the time comes he can become leader himself? So, so the, our position is, remains as it has always been since party conference. And, you know, at party conference we had, what was it, 200 delegates? For, I don't know, 400 delegates. Everybody who'd shown any interest in Brexit, and they all put in different motions, and they were basically locked in a room, not allowed out, until they had agreed what their yeah. policy was. And what's genius about our policy is that actually it is something that unites us. And it is, it comes in stages. So we vote against the deal if it doesn't pass our six tests. Obviously it doesn't pass our six tests, so we're going to vote against it. Then what happens? Then basically we say, it's old-fashioned politics, forgive us, but if you're a government and you can't govern on the biggest issue of our time, get another government. That's how it ought to be. We ought to have a general election. Now people say... Oh, what about the Fixed-Term Parliament Act? I know they push through the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, but I think the politics of it is one whereby we could find ourselves in a position where we have a Prime Minister who is unable to govern on the biggest issue of our time. So what we did was we locked all these poor people, delegates in a room, and we didn't let them out until they'd agreed a policy. And the policy is, is that we, we, put the, we put the Prime Minister's deal to the test, our six tests. If it doesn't pass that, then we're going to vote against. Then what? Then we think there should be a general election. We think there should be a general election because she can't govern. And she can't govern on the biggest issue of their time. Now, they may get rid of her individually. They may decide they want to try and hang on to power. But exactly how are they going to get through that? Even if they get rid of her, what are, what's their, never mind the personalities. What is going to be the policy? What are they going to do about Brexit? 
Will they finally come together? No, they won't. So if they can't agree on something, you do need another government. That's how it should be. Now, if they absolutely insist on hanging on to power, even though they have no idea what to do, right, then all options are on the table. Now, obviously, one of those options is having a popular vote. And it might be that the Tories will say, well, we really don't want a general election because we'll lose. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, let's have a let's have a popular vote. Let's put Theresa May's you know deal to a vote. I don't know, um, and that might be what they will end up doing. But we have said we will put all options on the table. I mean, we've talked about you know look if you can't negotiate something, then let us go over to Brussels and negotiate on behalf of the country. But you know perhaps not even with a general election. You know we will be flexible, but we're not voting for this because this is a bit of nonsense, and we're not bailing you out. You know, you come back negotiating this this nonsense that won't make any sense to anybody, and you, everybody knows that it won't. And it's just a way of stumbling over the line, so you can spend another two years fighting about what it is that you want from Brexit and not actually being able to give this country any direction. So that's what our policy is. I'm sorry to be boring, but that is what our policy is, and that's what John was was articulating this afternoon. And you know, I mean, sometimes some of us put words in the wrong. I remember I did this interview, right, where I talked about. I talked about Labour's policy was that we should be in the customs union. And then I saw these headlines and people coming up and asking me that I had changed po la had I changed Labour Party policy because wasn't Labour Party policy that we were to be in a customs union yeah. instead of the customs union. And I, you know, not perfect, you know. <laughs> I'd said the wrong word out of, you know, I'd said many words and one of them was wrong. You know, it wasn't that I was changing policy. It's just that, you know, when you're in, in, in an interview, you might give slightly different emphasis. And frankly, I mean, you know what journalists are like. They haven't got anything to report in a way at the moment mm. because we're all waiting for this failed vote. So they're just kind of, well, what should we talk about? We've got better talk about Brexit. Let's, let's pick at Labour and see if we can get them to say something slightly different. And let's then turn that into a headline. We are where we are. We ha we, this is our position. This is our policy. Do you get a sense that any Labour MPs are going to support Theresa May on it? There's one or two that I'm not, I don't really quite understand. I think Lord knows what they're going to do. I mean, uh, I'm not naming names, but there are one or two. There are one or two who are very odd, and I don't know what they're <laughs> going to do. But, yeah, no, nobody else is. There's not going to be a sort of huge, there's not going to be a big enough slice of Labour's parliamentary party to, to get it over the line, you don't think? No, certainly not. Really not. I mean, it, with all the scenarios, uh, and uh, t obviously it's a logical policy in that regard that you go through those different gates. Yeah. Part of the problem with the general election argument is, if you look, you know, the polling, but obviously the polling changed during the last election, so what do we know? But there's a, a high likelihood you have a general election, you end up with a very similar result. Nah. And you're all back in the House of Commons with, you know, no. a wafer thin Tory majority no. propped up by the DUP or something like that. It's never going to happen. Listen, the last general election, we began 20 points behind, if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, and we very nearly won. I think if we'd had another week, we would have won. Um, then this time, if you do have a general election, which is the real reason they don't want one, yeah. is not because they're worried about Jeremy Corbyn winning, but because if they have a general election, the Tories are going to have to put something in their manifesto that they all sign up to. And because they can't agree on anything, that's going to be their problem, and that will be their undoing in a general election. So under the kind of, you know, in the crucible of a general election, they will fall apart. But And that's why we'll win. But also because we will have a fantastic manifesto, we'll be radical, <laughs> because we have a great leader, because we have half a million members, because we are, because we are a great campaigning party, and we are the future. I take the point about, about the, the leap in but polling. I'll just put that into. <laughs> <laughs> the leap in polling, but then... Also, as with so many other campaigns, maybe this is, for want of a better phrase, peak Corbyn, 
that he can't win over. You think of the seats that Labour needs to win, think of the people that Corbyn didn't reach last time in those swing seats. Is Corbyn winning over those? Oh, give us a break, Matt. I, I mean, really, I mean, honestly, you know, we got the biggest increase in the Labour vote since 1945 in the last general election, and we didn't quite win. But hey, you know, and people started listening to us literally 10 days before. It was like, it wasn't the Saturday before, it was the Saturday before that. And you could tell I went up and down the country and suddenly people started saying, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn eats babies. I think maybe he might be all right. I've well, seen he's vegetarian. Him, I've seen him on TV. He talks about jam, you know, and, 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 and drain covers. Let's see what they say. Yeah. Oh, actually, do you know what? This manifesto, this is what I think we should be doing for, a country, for our country. And then people started coming to us. But we didn't have quite enough time. Next time we're going to win. We are. We are. I mean, you might. I mean, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah, we will. Who knows? And who knows who will lead the Tories? Yeah, now, all yeah. these things make such a difference. Who knows when it is? I mean, you do get the set, you know, if, if, if it is not until, say, 2022, does Corbyn still lead Labour into that election, you think? I would have thought so, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he certainly doesn't give any impression of being anything other than completely fit, healthy, ready to go, wanting to be Prime Minister. So in terms of the Shadow Cabinet, what's the dynamic like uh, in Shadow Cabinet meetings? Is he, is, he a, is he a domineering leader? I imagine he's, he, he listens a lot, but uh, am I right? <laughs> I can't talk about what happens in Shadow Cabinet. Ask me about outside and then I can talk to you about outside, but I okay. can't talk to you about okay. in Shadow Cabinet. If I was outside, <laughs> looking into the... <laughs> Very good. Looking into the Shadow Cabinet. Okay, what's your relationship with him like? Does he, does he, does he empower you um, in, in your role? I mean, does, is he a man-manager? Does he get involved in detail or does he devolve a lot of power? So... So Jeremy and I have known each other for a long time. When I was first elected in 2005, I was in a very, very marginal seat. Mm. We were number one target seat for the Liberals. Um, and, and my party was not in a great shape. We'd just been, you know, just been to a war in Iraq. Mm. Um, Islington South were not happy with Labour. Um, and, we were, um, and a lot of my party membership just found it really difficult to be out on the doorsteps and getting shouted at. It was really, really hard time. Mm. Um, and we didn't have a large number of people active in Holloway, for example, which is in the northern part of my constituency. And Jeremy came over the border. I didn't even know that he'd done this. And he spent the whole afternoon talking to people in Holloway, saying that I was anti-war, that I was a good person, that I was a good candidate, that I would be a great MP, and that people should vote Labour in my constituency. And yeah, I only won by 484 votes. I mean, it, you know, it was really... And he was always... We always, we always worked very well together, so when I was first elected, you know, a new Labour was in. If Jeremy wanted to go and see a minister, they were always busy. But if I put in, then they would see me and I'd bring Jeremy along. <laughs> you know, so we always work well together and, and lots of other new women MPs would have said that the other MPs who are around them, the sort of older men, were very competitive and difficult and would give them a hard time. And Jeremy was, and I'd listen to these stories and I couldn't believe it because Jeremy was never anything other than pleasant and supportive and, you know, a good comrade to me. So we, we trust each other and we know each other, you know, and then I didn't, I didn't support him for leader yeah. when he first stood. I supported Yvette. But once he'd been elected by the membership, basically my view was the membership has spoken, let's support him. And so that's our relationship. And... And he's very interested in foreign affairs, and he's and he's very interested in some foreign affairs more than more than others. So, we spend a lot of time talking about Yemen, which he's really interested in. And whenever I talk about Yemen in Parliament, he always you know makes sure that he stays and sits in. You know, there are certain things that really get him animated, and we have quite a lot of meetings with international leaders where you know I go along and he does too. 
So he's certainly interested in, in, in foreign affairs. Is it the same with international leaders, that you, you have to make the appointment and bring him along? <laughs> <laughs> it's the other way around. And, um, but, but he, you know, he has... I know what his views are, you know, and so if we're going to disagree, then we have to kind of go away and talk about how we're going to finesse this, mm. you know, because... I, you know, I I feel more strongly about NATO than he does. Yeah. Um, you know, th there will be things that we will we will have differences on. I think that we were right to to get into involved in Kosovo. He doesn't. I mean, you know, the differences between us are definitely there. They're just, you know, they're not as as major as uh, as uh, as there might be with other people within the party. But on, <coughs> it's easier to finesse those issues in opposition, isn't it? In, in government, if you are, and he's prime minister, and he's decided whether to take Britain into action through NATO or, or, or outside of it, that would be a big issue. I mean, could you ever, you know, if you're committed to NATO, under a Corbyn government, would you be prepared to resign over the issue? Over what? what well, if he was be? to say, well, Corbyn, actually, he's anti-NATO, isn't he? I mean, he, he might have changed his tune now, but he's always been anti-NATO. If he's well, said he's prime minister, he's changed wanna, his tune, I and our take policy is clear. But if you said we're supporting, we're supporters of NATO, and we've had debates about it. But people who change tunes get into the habit. So if he changes it back, <laughs> <laughs> if he changes it back and said, look, as, as, if, let's say a third-term Corbyn government when he's, uh, the shackles are off and he's ninety <laughs> odd or whatever, he's, he's, uh, he says we're, we're coming out of NATO, we're coming out of NATO, and that's the UK government policy under a Corbyn government. Would you say, Jeremy, I can't, I can't serve under this? I don't believe that would happen. I really think this is a hypothetical based on the idea of Jeremy being 90. And, well, uh, and Prime Minister. And, and Prime Minister for <laughs> three terms or four terms, you know. <laughs> I just, uh, obviously that image tickles me of, of, of you having to sort of sort out meetings. And how did ministers react to that? Because, there were, you know, there was, uh, and I'm sure people would accept, there was, a, there was a, sometimes an attitude problem. Um, with, with certainly people who got used to the ministerial life towards the end of you know Labour's time in office. I mean, was it that you would, you know, go to meet Ed Miliband and then you know he goes, uh, uh, you know, uh, Emily, great to see you, and then Corbyn went off oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how how did that dynamic work? With why do you keep bringing Corbyn along? Well, if we were talking about an Islington issue, I would say I need to speak to you about this issue. It's a constituency issue, and then I'd say. And it also affects it, Jeremy, too. <laughs> He's the other Islington MP. And just, like, not make a thing of it. You just, it's chutzpah. You just do it. Yeah. You know, just do it. It's a, a good thing. It, it, it sounds like you have a very good relationship with him. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that you have a lot of autonomy in your role and that he listens to your view and that on, you can finesse things, like big issues, like membership. And there are things that, he, that he's persuaded me of, too. I mean, what line? I'm not saying. But there are, but there are, there are some <laughs> oh, things. Oh, come on. All right, all right, let me have a think and I'll get back to you in a minute. Ask me something else. Okay. I think. Okay. Yeah. But I will come <laughs> um, so it, I just wondered if your relationship with him is 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 a better working relationship than than with the previous leader than with Ed Miliband. I got on very well with Ed as well, actually, um, but but there were times when I when I really thought that I was right, and I thought that he thought I was right, but he still made the wrong decision. So um, the big fight that we had, I don't think this is a secret, is um, on secret courts. So the government were introducing secret courts. And, and you know, for example, on there's, a, there's been a big court case recently about whether we should be selling arms to Saudi Arabia that could be used in Yemen. And if you look at what's been, what was said in open court, you'd think, well, there's no doubt that, that we can't sell arms to Saudi Arabia um, because of the evidence that was in open court. And then there was a whole lot of evidence in secret court. We don't know what it was. And the case was lost. And that's completely unaccountable. And it's wrong. Mm. Uh, and I don't think we should have secret courts. 
And, and we had this ongoing battle about what Labour's position should be. And we would sit down and there would be you know, senior people when I, was, when I was shadow AG and we would, such shadow attorney general, which means that I'm the lawyer to, to, the, to the leader of the opposition. And, and I, I would say, Ed, this is the position. And I would, have to, I would present position papers and then various other people would kind of pick it apart and say, oh, but what about this? And what about you know, foreign courts? So I'd come back the next time and go, right, position paper on foreign courts. This is what the position is. And I kept fighting it and we fought it and fought it and fought it for months. And I knew I was right. And I, I was off in Bristol helping with the mayoral campaign and Ed rang me and said, um, sit down, Emily, I'm afraid I'm voting for secret courts and you are too. And I said, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna vote for it. I, I could resign if you want me to, or I could, or I'm g I, if you force me to vote, I'm gonna vote against. So I won't go, I won't come. I won't come to, I won't come to parliament that day. And that's the best I can do. I don't want to, I don't want to rock the boat, but you mm. are wrong. I don't think you should do this. And that's how it is. And he was wrong. And he was wrong. Um, and so, you know, we would have these kinds of big fights. And, and then, then with Jeremy would not. I mean, on issues like that, Jeremy and I see eye to eye. Uh, and then obviously it came to a head in the, in the Rochester by-election in 2014 where you, you tweeted a picture of her. <laughs> I mean, it sounds... You know what? Sometimes there are these firestorms in politics and in the news that at the time we get so animated about, we read so many things into. And I can't believe I'm going to say this. You resigned because you tweeted a picture of a van. I know. I, picked, I tweeted a picture of a house with some England flags on. Uh, and you said, image from Rochester. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a series of pictures that I'd taken during yeah. the Rochester by-election. So I also took pictures of the Monster Raving Loony Party. I took some pictures of some kids that had been painting their own banners, political banners, you know, Vote Felix, and they had pictures of themselves. And, yeah. and I took a picture of clouds gathering behind Rochester Cathedral and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I did image from Rochester, and I did a whole series of them. But one of them was, uh, was a picture of a house with some England flags on. And people perceived that there was some sort of judgment in there, some, some sort of classism or some snobbery. Yeah. Ed Miliband, I presume, perceived that as well. So when you talked about it, what did you say to him? Well, I didn't quite understand what the problem was, to be honest, to begin with. Um, because I was, I was out on the doorsteps, I was knocking on doors and, you know, my phone started going crazy and there were just so many calls and this, that. I just didn't really kind of quite twig what was going on. And then, and then I left, I left and I went to a parents' evening. So I, you know, I had a call from Ed and I, at which point I thought, oh my God, I'm really in trouble about this. Um, and then I went off to the parents' evening and then I came home and then I got another call and he said, I mean, I think you're just going to have to resign. And I said, no, oh really? What, you know? And I told him about having been brought up on a council estate and how they, you know, the house looked very much like mine, but, you know, it was a long time since the World Cup and this house was covered in England flags and it was just a very striking image and it was one of many. And he said, no, really, you're going to have to resign. So I said, all right. Because in the end, nobody's bigger than the Labour Party. Mm. I mean, I am absolutely a Labour loyalist. I, I, you know, I will not do something that will undermine the Labour Party. The Labour Party has to get into power and I won't get in the way of that. Um, well, I remember there's some details about that that sort of tickled me because at the time you sort of go, oh, well, this proves you know Labour's got a problem with England and mm. you know Labour people aren't comfortable with the St George's Cross. Mm. I, I don't think there's some truth to that. Uh, progressive people aren't comfortable with the idea of sort of English identity, whatever that is, and I think that's true, particularly in the Labour Party. 
And what was quite funny was people going, you know, this poor bloke's got a white van in England. Like, you know, the poor fella. And then <laughs> as the details emerged, it was like, you know, Craig, whatever his name was, uh, is a cage fighter. And he went, <laughs> yeah, I mean, all right, yeah, apart from the cage fighting and apart from... <laughs> The fact that he might have some, you know, peculiar views about nationhood. You know, as the, as, the, as the onion was unpeeled, actually, I think maybe sympathy turns your way. Um, but you talk about your, your life, and it's obviously had a big impact on you because, um, you know, your parents together, your, your dad was an assistant general secretary of the United That's Nations. That's what he became. At the time, he was, a, he, was a, he, was a, he was at the LSE. So he was teaching at the LSE. We lived in Guildford, and we were in a, a nice house on the top of the hill in Guildford. And then my parents split up when I was seven, and my dad disappeared. And we just didn't have any money all of a sudden and just didn't have anything, you know. And mum had to go on to benefits and we couldn't, we couldn't pay the mortgage and we didn't have any fuel and we didn't, you know, people started giving us food parcels. Mm. And anyway, and the bailiffs turned up and chucked us out. And so we moved on to a big council estate on the outskirts of Guildford. You recognised the van, perhaps? That's what it well, my brother used to be a builder. I mean, this is ridiculous, you know. I mean, I always think it's harder for people, I, and I wonder how much of this informs your politics, because I grew up in a, a single-parent family on benefits, free school mm -hmm. meals and all that, in a, in, a, in a very rough part of Nottingham. But that was the norm. Mm. And I think it's always harder mm. if you remember your parents being together, mm. regardless of wealth or class or all those things. I think it's a far harder impact on a child to remember what you had and then go through free school meals and being in a different queue at lunch. So I think when it's the norm, it's bad enough when it's the norm, but it's kind of, you didn't know anything else. Well, I was seven, and, and I think that kids just put up with things. You didn't, I didn't think about it. I didn't think about my t the ticket for my free school meals being a different colour and us having to queue up mm. separate. It was only when I got older that I became outraged by it, to be yeah. honest. You know, I was out. I mean, I'm outraged by it. Um, I'm, I'm outraged by, by the fact that, you know, I, I failed my 11 plus. I went to a secondary modern, you know, the head of my careers department. I asked him... What was I going to do when I grew up? And he said that I could always visit people in prison. But he really thought that I was going to marry a gangster or something. You know, I did visit people in prison. I became a criminal barrister. <laughs> but he wasn't thinking of that, you know. And I, and there was, I also always think about a particular girl who I had been friends with and then I, I fell out with. But, and she used to bully me terribly. She was in this big gang and it was in the 70s and they had platform shoes. And, you know, I used to come back with bits of my hair missing and, you know, great kind of, you know... But I used to always fight back, which was probably a mistake. Well, prepared you for Labour Party probably meetings. Prepared me for Labour Party meetings. <laughs> and I was one of the very few who got to university from my, from my school. But I wasn't as bright as, as this woman was. I mean, she was brighter than me. She really was. And she had, and she had something about her, you know, she still has. You know, and, uh, but her life has gone very different to mine. And, and I think it was expectations at home and... You know, I had a troubled background, but I was expected to do well, and this particular girl wasn't. And just see the two ways in which we've gone in separate directions. I remember that. I remember that. I remember the fact that, you know, that, that people would come and look around our house to see how many toothbrushes there were, because they didn't believe my mum was single. I, you know, I, I remember this. I remember this. I remember the bailiffs. I remember the food parcels. You know, I remember only having second-hand clothes. I remember us not expected to do well I remember them thinking looking down on us and me thinking oh show them and I have you have well that's <laughs> not really I good have. I mean do you, do you feel that do you feel like and I think this is true of you do you feel you get judged by your accent a lot probably people presume that well probably you're but privately educated and all yeah this. maybe but I think it's also um, there's lots of men who talk like me 
I yeah. think it's women who talk like me. I think it's Southern women as well. Yeah. People just make, uh, you know, make kind of, there's actually there's a bit of misogyny in there too. But do you think, you know, it's sometimes the way that the Labour Party would talk about David Cameron and George Osborne, and obviously they, they did come from particular backgrounds, but in a way, were they ever, did you ever think, well, actually, it's not fair to make arguments based on class and background? I think that they had major d disadvantages going into politics. I think coming from such a narrow background as they did would make it quite difficult for them to be good politicians, but it doesn't make it impossible, but I think they had to work at it harder. So the thing is, I, whatever else, I think you've got an amazing voice. So whatever else goes on, and I think it's phenomenal for politics, and it, it really helps command the chamber, and it's a big part of, you know, helps you have a distinct persona. But whatever, I mean, you've got so much life left. You should go into, like, audio books or, like, <laughs> genuinely. Like, it is one of the... Radio 4 in the morning, if Emily Thornby's on, you're like, oh, this is amazing. It's such a great... Some people have just voices that are great to listen to, and you've got one. Well, it's all the smoking, I think. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Do you still smoke or not? I'm afraid I do. And I was also, when, you know, when I was a kid, my my um, my mum used to send us out to everything that, you know, to give herself a bit of time. So so I was I was sent to a church choir and I learned to sing and I learned to breathe and I learned to project without mm. ever knowing I'd been taught. And that has really helped me. You know, that's really helped me. Um, but just before I open it up to audience questions, what was the, th can you think of anything that Jeremy Corbyn has convinced you of? Oh, God, I question. forgot. I forgot to think. To Sorry. give up smoking, perhaps, one day. He did. He does really want me to give up smoking. He does, yeah. Does he? What does he say, <laughs> Emily, for God's sake? Yeah, that's what he says. So do you sometimes, we, like, I mean, how many do you smoke a day? It depends how bad a day it is. <laughs> so quite a lot. <laughs> so, you know, it's between 5 and 20, but at the moment it's more like 20 than 5. So will he ever say... Bloody hell. are you sort of always out the sort of window or like that? <laughs> I have a balcony in my office, so you right. can, it's, it, some people call it a window ledge, I call it a balcony. <laughs> <laughs> and Don't I, do it! <laughs> <laughs> well, it is quite alarming because I tend to have a fag when I have a moment and then people come in for a, meet, for a meeting and I climb in through the window <laughs> onto the radiator and go, Smoke. hello. <laughs> I don't think it's odd because I'm doing it all the time, but they do look a bit alarmed. <laughs> Yeah, but you've got to try, um, have you tried patches and stuff like that? No, I've tried all of them. I've tried all of them. Thing is, and I used to smoke, nothing is as good. No. <laughs> you should get a vape. I've tried that. It leaked. I really didn't like it. And we hate that in the shadow cabinet. We hate that in the shadow cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't do it. <laughs> yes, <you> do. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> right, we've got time for some uh, audience questions, so please indicate. Yes, the lady down the front was the fastest. Oh, I'll have to, we're going to have to swap. Oh, do we, oh, we do have an extra. Sorry, I could have used that. Oh, here we are, down the front. So if you could let us know your name and the question, please. And if we can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, and we'll, we'll, we'll get two or three in. Yeah. Oh, we, it's, oh, it's got to just wait. Let's go. Here we go. We're live. Hello. Hello. Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, and I think the rules of the map board Q&As you have to answer. Imagine if in two years or so Corbyn steps down and he doesn't anoint a successor and for some reason you can't stand because of some kind of terrible scandal. <laughs> 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 Just, um, what, who do you pick for your leader? Great question. But the thing is, is that I don't accept the premise of the question. I think that Jeremy is the leader. Jer Jeremy, Jeremy is the leader, and Jeremy will be the next prime minister. And there is no vacancy, and there is no point in specula speculating. Okay, how about in like ten years? 
He's not going to say. Well, 10 years is a very long time. I mean, 10 years is a very long time. And where will we be? Where, where will we be as a country in 10 years' time? Fuck. Who knows? Um, okay. Okay, let's, let's do it another way. Who are the rising stars that you think are really talented? Oh, I can tell you who the rising stars are. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I really, I really... I really reckon on Shami. I think that she has moved from from being a sort of national treasure into being a really effective politician. I think that yeah. she's brilliant. Um, I think that I think I, I like Angela very much. Angela, Angela Rainer, Rainer's brilliant. Who's yeah. really good. Um, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking as I go around. I think that um, there's, yeah, a, there's not a him, not him. <laughs> there's a, there's a woman called Margaret who's currently doing work and pensions, who's only just been elected, but. She she gave a presentation recently and was really getting on top of a very difficult brief and I think uh, potentially she's really impressive as well. Um, I reckon Dawn, but Dawn and I are mates, so I'm very biased. Dawn and I have always been very close mates. Uh, Dawn Butler and um, so I would. So there you are. There's okay. Three, there's there's, there's, three, there's three, three uh, potential leads. Uh, anyone else uh, for a question in this section? And I'll move across the room. Okay, there was a chap over there. I'll just help out a bit. There we go. Cheers, Jules. Thank you very much. I think it was the fellow with his arm up there. Hi, I'm uh, Gordon. If you were to describe in one word the ideolo ideology of um, <laughs> Theresa May and Corbyn with regards to Brexit, what would it be? I think that Jeremy is a pragmatist. And I have no idea how to describe Theresa May, <laughs> really. I, mean, I just think she just wants to stay in power which means keeping the Tory party together, and she doesn't know how to do that. So it's nobody does. A, 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 no, nobody a different does. type of pragmatist. It's just hopeless. I mean, it's ho I think that's the word. It's hopeless. There is no hope. There is no possibility. There is no plan. There's nothing. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. How is it better under Labour? Because under Labour, right, we have people, we have people, we have people with that, I mean, certainly there are people on the fringes of the party who will have different views to this, and that's always going to be the way it is. But the leadership and the leadership team are clear about what it is that we've wanted, and we have been clear, which is, which is that we have to be in a, we have to be in a customs union, close to the single market, and on a common rule book, and everything else is there to be negotiated. And we would turn up, and we would turn up at the EU, and we would say, Let's reset our relationship. We're not going to shout at you. We're not going to call you names. We are the grown-ups. We are internationalists. We actually are pro-European. But we weren't the liars or the manipulators. We wanted to stay in the European Union. Unfortunately, we lost the referendum. And above all, we're Democrats. And we're taking the same pragmatic approach as you would do if you were on this side of the table. We both have a problem. Let's sort this out between us. That will be our negotiating okay. position. And it will be completely different. Uh, just, just in terms of uh, the future of Labour's relationship with Europe, do you think it's conceivable in, in, in your future career that the Labour Party um, would uh, have a referendum to rejoin the European Union? What really surprises me, to be quite honest with you, is that it, why it is that public opinion has not shifted to be more Remain than it is. And, and if I think about it, I think one of the reasons is because people have got dug in, and the reason they've got dug in is because they feel, it may not be said this way, but this is what they hear. They hear that they're stupid, or that they're racist, or that they've been manipulated, and they don't like it. You know, why should they? And actually, so therefore, people who have voted to leave are saying, no, 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 no. I voted to leave because I think we're better off with that. You know, yeah. and all. I mean, and I go up and down the country. I don't just stay in London. I listen to people up and down the country, and they do say, I voted to leave. 
you know, and I st- and I want us to leave, and this is, you know, and and you, you know, and proper, I think, proper statespeople in these circumstances trying to hold the country together, and the way you hold the country together is you think right, fifty two, forty eight, you have to leave because the fifty two one, forty eight are not to be ignored. We're not to go far. But what about you know five or ten years? You know, maybe after Corbyn or whatever. It, it's, it, it, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? Let's say that whatever the people's vote is a different type of proposition. It would be inconceivable in the lifetime of the Labour Party that a pro-European party doesn't say, after we've left the European Union, at some point it would be our intention to take us back in. I hear that. And I think that what we need to do is we need to have a period whereby people are properly respectful to one another and what their different views are, and we have a real debate. And I think, because I think that we're better off remaining in the European Union than leaving, that, that you know, therefore, obviously, I would say this, wouldn't I, that if there was a, a proper, calm debate where people thought about, weighed it up properly, that there would be a swing in public opinion and that we would end up with 70% of the population wanting to remain. Now, in those circumstances, no democratic politician would want to do anything other than to be back in the European Union or to remain. But the difficulty is, is that although there have been a few percentage point shifts one way or yeah. the other, there's not been the overwhelming 70% that, frankly, one might imagine might happen, given everything that's come out. But given that it's not happened, we're not going to go for best of three. We're going to have to go, you know, with, with, with the results of the referendum, unless... You know, we go through all the other options, and this is the only option left because we're leaving all options on the table. Uh, I always like to end on a, on a positive note. So it's a question that's um, probably the second biggest issue after Brexit in terms of the question that's been put to politicians. Um, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> no way I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Absolutely no way. No way. <laughs> I what? wouldn't tell you the second most naughty or the third. What's the, what's the, what's, what leaks? <laughs> What could you tell us? I'm not going to. No way I'm getting bored on that. No so it's, it makes it sound like you're quite a naughty person. I've had my moments. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you'll have a few more. Emily, it's been a real pleasure having you here tonight. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we thank Emily, um, as I said, the two Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre uh, on the 19th are Jess Phillips and Sarah Wollaston. And on the 20th fun day, Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles. Um, and I'm doing two shows at the South Bank Centre of Stand-Up uh, this coming Saturday and next Wednesday. Uh, with my show Brexit through the gift shop. Well, there you go. It's a pu- it, you know, it never gets a laugh, but um, you know, <laughs> it sets the tone for the following hour. So, uh, uh, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. If this is the last one you come to uh, this year, thank you so much for coming down. But, ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge thank you to a wonderful guest, Emily Thornbury. <laughs> Well, Emily Thornbury, what a wonderful guest. It's always good when you have a guest who can do the, you know, the policy stuff um, and the serious stuff, but can also uh, really make an audience laugh. And she's got a real gift for being able to make people laugh and has got so many great stories and tells them so well. Uh, she was brilliant and it was a real pleasure to, uh, to have the time with her. Um, so there we go. Uh, some forthcoming guests, uh, as I said, uh, the Christmas specials, uh, the 19th and 20th, uh, Jess Phillips and Sarah Waddleston on the 19th, and Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles on the 20th. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. If there's anything that has occurred to you throughout this discussion or any others or any feedback you would like to give, um, 
it is always a pleasure to, to read them. And let me know where you listen, which is always uh, always cool to imagine people all around the world, uh, or indeed all around um, the UK, uh, listening to the show. If you can, please leave an iTunes review uh, and share it and get people to subscribe um, because it, all the numbers um, help keep the podcast popular and mean that um, other people can listen to it as well. So if I don't see you before Christmas... Well, I'll be releasing some of these. I was just about to say Merry Christmas, which is ludicrously early. Um... But, yes, I shall hold off on that, but sort of Merry Christmas, because we are getting into it now, and I do make sure the tree is up on the first, or even just before, so by the time you listen to this, it will probably be Christmas, so there's no harm in that, is there? Um, And I will see you, hopefully, at the South Bank, or the Leicester Square, uh, and if I don't, see you in the new year. Cheers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.